your board for the city of Lawrence. Give us just a few minutes here. We'll get started. Everybody's kind of getting situated. We're going to start here in just a, a minute or two. Monty Sokup. I'm the chair of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board for the City of Lawrence. This is our July 10th meeting. Um, at this time, I'm going to turn it over to Leah Roseland, the uh, Affordable Housing Administrator for the city, and she's going to kind of read the ground rules for the meeting. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Good morning, everyone. I have a few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or to turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll make a few comments on public comment. When the chair calls for public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate that they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure that your comments are heard. Participants Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand fun function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Individuals will be called on in the order that they appear on the meeting host screen. Please state your name before speaking. All comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, and now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mr. Sukup. Thank you, Leah. At this time, I'm gonna take the roll. We'll make sure we have a quorum. So, Karen Willey. Sarah Waters. Here. Nicholas Ward. Phil Engelhart. Here. Mark Mueller. Here. Christina Gentry. Here. Erica Zimmerman. Here. Dana Ortiz. Here. Shannon Aury. Here. Uh, Thomas Howe. Present. Trent Santee. Here. Monty Sokup here. Um, I, is this Edith still on or is she off at this point officially? This is Leah Roseland. Edith is officially off okay. uh, as a member of the AHAP. We just need to get her removed. Okay. All right. So that is uh, 10 members. So we have a quorum today. And with that, I'm going to open it up for public comment. <laughs> I see no one here in the room. Do we have anybody online? 
appears there's no one online. So with that, I'm going to close the public comment period and we'll move into approving the minutes of the June 12th meeting. I would welcome a motion to approve those or any comments. Motion to approve. Okay. Okay, so we have a motion and a, to approve the minutes as written and a second. Is there any discussion? Seeing none, I'm gonna call the vote. I'm gonna read it in the same order that I called roll. So Sarah Waters. Approve. Phil Engelhart. Approve. Mark Bueller. Approve. Christina Gentry. Yes. Erica Zimmerman. Yes. Dana Ortiz. Approve. Shannon Ori. Approve. Thomas Howe. Approve. Trent Santee. Yes. Monty Sokup approved. Motion passes 10-0. So we'll move on to the regular agenda items. Uh, receive staff updates on racial equity and housing data and review affordable housing advisory board goal on increasing racial equity in housing. And with that, I'm gonna turn that over to Leah. Thank you, Mr. Chair. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, Jeff Crick, uh, Director of Planning and Development Services, was going to go over the map that we have linked in the agenda, and then I will quickly um, review the data document that's attached. All right. Good morning, everybody. Give me one second, and I will do the screen share so I think everybody can take a look. So. This is a bit of a working draft. Um, we've still got some bugs to work out and get details to it, but this is a way of uh, just pulling up data real quick on socioeconomic and demographic data based on census tracts in the community. And what will happen, and let me shrink my zoom screen real quick, is so when you zoom in, and I'll just click on random one here just to kind of pull it up, is you'll see it'll start to pull information in the left-hand column. It'll tell you, in this case, it's pulling information based on uh, male and female population age counts that are coming from the census tables and those kind of details to it. But there are some other things that are built into this map that you can add to it and turn on so you can get more read of information. So on the right-hand side here, you'll see there are some of these that have kind of the, the slash there, kind of indicating what they are. You can turn those on. And the map will get a little bit cluttered, but when you click on it this next time up, this is probably where the bugs kick in here for me a little bit, um, it'll actually start pulling different sets of information. And you can see here, this will tell you about households that spend more than 30% of their income in an area. And as you tab through, you can then see uh, ages, so under 18, over 65 information. You can see the demographics that are reported to the Census Bureau as part of the decennial census and the counts that are attributed to those. And they do run a little off the screen occasionally, so you can just scroll down and pick them up in case they run long. Uh, you can also see uh, vehicular access, those that have and do not have access to vehicles. So that is probably a, an asset that we'd take a look at when you talk in terms of housing and availability. And of course, this will also pull uh, owner-renter information for the areas. And again, if you kind of run into those, they'll run off the screen just by a bit, but you can kind of see the way that the Bureau tabulates that data and it provides it. Um, 
we're still working out a couple of bugs on this one. There are a few things we'd like to improve and, and get better data, but this is really just kind of a proof of concept. We can plug this map with a lot of different census information, so it's a very quick find your spot. You can do that kind of information, look up. There are other tools, so you can pull up uh, different, if you want to look at images, you want to capture them and save them for later, you can do that. You can pull that information out and share it. Uh, you can also do searches by addresses. So if you're interested in finding out a certain address, you can plug it in. It'll pull up that census track and all the information that you have turned on for it. So work in progress, but just wanted to let you know this is out there and available. And if there's anything you'd like us to see, if we can also include into this, we're happy to take a look and see what else we can add to it. <coughs> but that would be happy to stand for any questions. Uh, this is available to uh, Thomas Howell, Lawrence Board of Realtors representative. This is available to anybody who wants to go onto the city site and pull it up? Yep. It's a, it's a map available to the public and uh, pulls all of the latest census information that we have access to. Is, is job information on here? Not yet, but we can add some if we'd like. And education? I don't think that one's on there either. We can definitely take a look and see about those two and make them available. This is Christina Gentry. Uh, this census information is from 2020? Yes. 2023? Okay. And how 20. often do you under feel like it'll be updated uh, rather frequently as we understand more data or waiting to the next census taker? Yeah, I, I'm a, not a fan of waiting to the next one because it'd be 20, it's 10 years running out on that one. So what we'd like to probably do is start pulling from the five-year ACS data set, which is your more longer term, more accurate over time counts that we would do. So we would roll that into that data updates and start to pull from those as they become available. And actually some of those may start pulling from them now. I can't remember because some of the 2020 data is still not in a good spot, but the ACS tends to be in a better. So there may be a couple of those that is pulling from ACS. I just don't happen to remember all of the details off the top of my head. Thank you. Uh, Shannon Aury, uh Housing Authority. Um, one of the things we always have trouble with is the student population and trying to disaggregate the students out. Mm -hmm. um, do we have any idea about if they're in or out of this information? This is it's a great question, and it's going to be unique to the Census 2020 because every time you do a census, it's where you're living on April 1st of the decennial years where you get counted. So typically, students would be counted in the city of Lawrence during the year. However, April 1 of 2020, KU was closed, and same with Haskell. So we do not know exactly how those numbers have transpired into our overall counts because with the COVID and the closure of the schools, we don't know, and that's part of that, that that anomaly we're seeing in the 2020 data that we're still teasing out of it. The ACS should theoretically over the five-year average kind of normalize for that, but we don't, I don't know that for certain off top of my head. So it, they should be included, but I don't know if they've really been counted in the same light as they would have been. Mark. This is Sarah Waters with the University of Kansas. It, the university actually was not closed in April 2020. We were into a limited operation. Um, and so, and classes were still going on. And so there was some work done to get students to respond on the census um, based on where they would have been should they not have needed to be remote. So I get the data is gonna be strange on this because of that and that confusion. Um, but the University of Kansas was actually still open and functioning in April 2020. Uh, Mark Bueller, Chamber of Commerce. Um, is this federal or state census? This would be the federal. Okay, because I still believe, I could be wrong, the state census counts the kids at home. 
Are you familiar with that? I am, and I don't know, I can't remember the rule on if that has changed or evolved, but that used to be the case, and yeah. I don't know if it's still true. And historically, everybody but, you know, Manhattan, Emporia, Lawrence, you know, everybody else wants them counted at home. Right. So this is the federal. Uh, the, the reason I mentioned education and jobs is uh, I, I think this group is in the housing interest business, the interest of housing for all. And I can't believe that those two factors don't contribute to uh, their ability to eventually obtain housing. Not, not everybody's going to own a house, I, I know that. But um, anyway, that's the reason for my comment. All right. Any other comments on for, or questions for Jeff? All right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. I will um, briefly review the racial disparities in housing summary document. And just to remind the AHAB of uh, some of the context. Um, so at our last retreat, we set a new five-year goal of increasing racial equity in housing. And over the next several months, um, and that's all, as far as we have it at this point, is just having that, just the goal. And so over the next several months, we will be um, discussing output goals for that um, outcome goal. Um, so specifically what movement we would like to see and the strategies that we will utilize to make the movement. Um, in other words, to increase racial equity in housing, how will we do it? Um, so to get us uh, started and understanding what disparities do exist in Lawrence so that we can set good output goals and strategies, um, I'm going to quickly review this um, data that we have available for Lawrence and then we have a couple of amazing presenters who will go over the some of the historical context that contribute to the disparities that exist today as well as make some recommendations for strategies. Um, so I want to um, save most of the time for them. I am going to share my screen. Excuse me, Leah. Oh, you're yeah, doing I that, apologize. I just, uh, we're probably not going to have a tremendous amount of time to think about, act, talk about strategies and stuff today. So I would encourage everybody to take notes. And if you hear something that you think will fit into a strategy, please take a note. Next, so you have that next time we meet when we're going to have time more time to talk about. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Monty. Yeah, absolutely. That is um, the goal of today is just to sort of. Uh, get a little bit more familiar with the information and then we'll have some more time next month and in the month after to discuss strategies. So I am not going to go over this whole document. I am just going to highlight um, some of the data points that we have here and then ask that you review it on your own, um, the items that I don't cover. Um, but some 
particularly poignant information and that provides some context of why the AHAB set this goal, why it's so important in our overall goal of affordable housing for everyone in our community. Um, so right up at the top, um, black, indigenous, people of color, BIPOC, Lawrence residents experience higher rates of housing problems, including housing insecurity, overcrowding, or substandard housing than white Lawrence residents. And you can see the percentage breakdown there. So 47% of black residents experience housing problems, 57% of Hispanic or Latinx residents, 51% <coughs> of API, and only 38% of white residents. I wanted to move to um, this uh, data point. So Native American, Black, multi-race, and other race populations are all above their Douglas County population percentages in terms of admissions at the Lawrence Community Shelter. Black populations make up a particularly high percentage of admissions. So black residents are 16% of admissions to LCS compared to roughly 5% of the overall population as do Native Americans at 6%. So in other words, we understand that black and native um, residents are experiencing a disproportionate rate of homelessness in our community. Um, we discussed home ownership and what the disparity in home ownership is in Lawrence. So you can see um, that um, not only is it a, there a racial disparity in home ownership, but that Lawrence is uh, not doing great compared to other communities either. <laughs> um, so we are um, the 158th lowest of all metros in terms of racial equity um, in housing ownership. So our overall home ownership rate is 49%. 0.3%, whereas the black home ownership rate in Lawrence is only 23.9%. Um, native home ownership rate is just a little over 21%. Asian, a little over 23%. Latinx, a little over 31%. Whereas for white, it's 53%. So you can see the great disparities in home ownership and then how that contributes to long-term um, wealth and housing stability. This um, data here is from the 2024 Consolidated Plan, and you can see the specifics in the tables, but I'm just going to go down to um, sort of the, the summary. So uh, in general, um, wait a minute. What, what page are you going to? I am going to. <laughs> Excuse me. This is yeah. Maori Housing Authority. Um, Leah, on the on all of these charts, the last box says household has no slash negative income, but none other housing problem. What exactly is that referring to? Um, I would ask if my colleague Brad Carr would mind providing some additional information. He's the one that gathered this data. Brad, are you available to take that question? Yep, I sure am. Thank you, friend. Uh, 
Um, so let me see. So this data does come from the HUD's CHAS, uh, which is the Comprehensive Housing Affordability Strategy. And so that column, Chan, that you're referring to is, pull up here my notes. So they break down, uh, if we start on uh, that first section under uh, disproportionate need for safe and affordable housing, um, where it defines the, the, the four housing problems, lacking complete kitchen facilities, plumbing facilities, overcrowding, or housing costs greater than 30% of your income. So they're breaking those out as if they have one or more of the four housing problems, if they have no of the housing problems, and then that final category is that they have they have no income or negative income, but they don't have any of those other uh, problems. And so they're breaking out those are, that are the ex extreme, the lowest of the low income. Um, so you, you can see, uh, compare, take out some of the those that are making 30% as compared to those that are making actually zero or a negative income. Thank you, Brad. And then I'm just going to move to the very last page that um, summarizes the data tables. So in terms of housing problems, again, black African-American households um, experience one or more housing problems at a disproportionate greater need. Um, Latinx households um, experience one or more housing problems at a disproportionate greater need at those AMIs. Um, again, for severe housing problems, Latinx households at 50 to 80 percent AMI experience one or more housing problems at a disproportionate greater need. Um, housing cost burden, black African-American households experience housing cost burden at a disproportionately greater need. Um, and then again, the home ownership, the disproportionate rates of home ownership is shown there. And so um, this is really just for, uh, it's, again, some context of why this racial equity and housing goal is so vital to our overall goal, um, that if we are not approaching this from looking at racial equity as a route, then um, we won't be able to meet our overall goal <laughs> of um, uh, affordable house, affordable and attainable housing for all residents in Lawrence. Um, and this, uh, the disparities do not exist as we all know because of, <laughs> because of lack of work ethic or trying or, or, or anything like that. The, um, the cause of the disparities is historical and present day racism. And um, I am happy to take any questions, but um, our presenters are here to provide some more, again, historical and uh, contextual information and then present some strategies about how we can achieve our goal of achieving greater ra racial equity in housing. Are there any questions for me? Could I make a general comment? Because I didn't get the package for whatever miscommunication reason, um, I haven't had a chance to review these tables. But are, do you have a cross-tab breakout that shows uh, racial groups as a function of age and the corresponding proportions? Uh, 
where, where, you, where you cross tab or cross stratify as a function both of ethnicity and age group. The reason why I ask this question is when we get into broader notions of affordable and attainable housing, it seems to me that we too often have a tendency to, to meld, you know, the senior age group with groups that are that are not senior and that it oftentimes can confuse our our thinking and our strategies uh, about how we might approach some aspects of affordable housing that's my opinion so ethnicity is a function of age and percentages This is Leah Roslin. Are you so you're asking for a table that shows um, race and ethnicity, AMI or housing information with age? Is that what? You're as a, yes, I I believe that that could it might confuse things, but but for me, I I think that might be helpful. So, tell me about age. It, if if we know that so many people are old, I guess. <laughs> Can I say that now? Um, do, do we not factor them into our math or our cure? Mm -hmm. I mean, wh wh why do you why do you want that? You, you, you me, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, in many respects, senior housing is a different beast than non-senior housing. Okay, particularly when you talk about well, both both on the private side and the public side, they, they are they. I think they are they are different beasts. They have some pretty distinct characteristics that that if you if you don't make an age distinction, sometimes it confuses you going forward in trying to develop strategies. So have we fixed the old people problem? In because I don't think we have. <laughs> Go ahead, Shannon. <laughs> uh, I would say no. We probably, <laughs> we probably have. Uh, we serve uh, about a third of our population as senior or disabled, sometimes using the same type of housing. And uh, so that'd be two-thirds of the, our 450 wait list. So there's a lot of folks out there who's, who are seniors and or disabled who need housing solutions. I will say we have made some progress towards it because several of our low-income housing tax credit right. uh, that we funded um, have built units specifically for this population. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. It looks like Brad came up on screen, so he might have some additional information to add. Yeah, um, so in relation to the CHAS data that Leah has pulled in here, that, um, that was from our recent comprehensive plan that we uh, permitted, submitted to the City Commission for review, and then now it's currently under review by, for HUD. That's our next five-year plan. Inside of that whole plan, um, there are uh, a lot more details than what Leah included in this one. And there are some breakdowns um, out of the CHAS in relation to age. Um, it's not very detailed. It basically contains whether the household contains a person, at least one person 62 to 74, whether the household contains a, one person 75 or older, 
or households with children six or younger. And then it has those broken out um, by income percentages, zero to 30%, 30 to 50, 50 to 80. So there are some more detailed age things in that much larger uh, consolidated plan. Thank you. This is Shannon Aury again. Um, Brad, do can you drill down in that data? I haven't looked at the consolidated plan, but can you drill down into which of the one of the four housing problems each is re referring to? Because my my guess is going to be it's going to be being housing burdened is probably one of the most. Um, as opposed to equally across all four? So unfortunately, no, that data set that they give us specifically for us creating our consolidated plan um, only provides just those tables that you're seeing there. Um, and it does not allow us to drill down any deeper. Um, HUD has those custom sets made um, by the uh, Census Department and a lot of that data is either not released to the public or only released in smaller bite-sized chunks, not available, you know, the full drill-down data. I know those those four housing problems is, that's kind of why it breaks out on that one, um, those with no income, so you can at least see those that are having, you know, so if that first chart that says there, that there's 4,810 housing in the jurisdiction that has one or more of the four housing problems, and of those, 500 of those we know have no income and no other housing problems. So you know 500 of those 4,800 are definitely facing uh, the housing cost greater than their income, than 30% of their income. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Thank you so much, Brad. Um, I, I, I want to circle back to Phil's question or comment. Um, and I'm, I guess I've been, I'm unsure if the comment was maybe trying to make sense of the disparities by presuming that there perhaps were more BIPOC individuals that were seniors than the general population, or I'm just trying to suss that out, but I wanted to call your attention to this one, um, this data point here, and I'll read it because I'm not sharing screen. So in Douglas County, 29% of black households, uh, well, I'm gonna, drill down to the second sentence. So the, uh, in the um, disparity is even more pronounced for children. So in Douglas County, there's a 360% difference in poverty experienced by black children, with 72% of black children under age five living at or below the poverty level, as compared to 11.5% of white children. So sometimes we search for uh, perfectly reasonable explanations for um, dis racial disparities that exist um, other than white supremacy and racism, which um, really is the, the factor that's contributing to the disparities. Um, and I, 
if at all possible, knowing that intersections do exist and disparities with age and race and gender and other um, identities, if we could try and stay focused on race and ethnicity today um, so that we can really lean into it, knowing that sometimes, particularly for white-identified folks, it's uncomfortable to lean into the discussion, but it's really vital in order to get an understanding and to meet our goal. And this is Christina Gentry. I just wanted to uh, kind of compliment Leah's uh, inquiry or her comment. Um, and then ask, maybe, maybe we take home a question we ask ourselves, or maybe we can sit with the question internally uh, and ask what would it look like if we were to address the legacy of racial injustice directly rather than by proxy? Mm. Um, I, I understand downplaying a crime, but, but, but this is a crime, um, as I see it, as how we are understanding how what systems have benefited and others and have downplayed other success. So instead of downplaying the crime, we, we need to magnify the power of these events to shape our cities today and in the future. Um, so I think it's imperative that we hear from the presenters and get a full understanding of what that data looks like so then we can ask those questions of ourselves, of what we can do to um, undo, um, if we can do that in this board. <coughs> This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, thank you, Christina. And if it's okay with the chair to move to the next agenda item, it seems like a good time. Yeah. Let's, you good with that, Monty? Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, thank you so much to Marielle and Lacey for presenting to us here today. Um, I will let them introduce themselves and what all the fabulous things that they do. And again, thank you so much for being here. Sorry, we're adjusting for height. <laughs> here. Okay. Should I share, share screen to bring up the... Yeah, I don't remember what it was called, but it's the strategic plan piece. Yes, let's get. So while they are getting that pulled up, um, just uh, wanted to remind the AHAB that there is um, a city and county with community stakeholder, a stakeholder group working on the housing and homelessness community strategic plan where we have different focus areas. One of those focus areas is equity and Muriel and Lacey are the conveners of that focus area work group. <laughs> Hi everyone, my name is Lacey Rowe and I'm the Director of Community Engagement for the Lawrence Community Shelter. Hello commissioners, my name is Mariel Ferreiro. I am a co-lead with Lacey on the uh, Housing and Homeless Strategic Plan Equity and Inclusion Work Group. So the focus of our content is to inform the larger strategic plan, which is a partnership between the city and county. Many of you may have reviewed that. It's a pretty hefty document, but our focus is looking at how equity and inclusion as an overhead can inform the rest of the plan, specifically addressing housing and homelessness. So we're going to first go over some of our goals and then we're going to focus on one particular strategy today uh, that we think speaks a little bit towards this conversation around ethnicity and racism. Uh, by conversation of home ownership and programming that we feel could be very beneficial in addressing those inequities that exist, not only on a national basis, but really drilling down, like many of you are interested in, into how that affects Lawrence as a community and how we are seeing those um, 
unfortunate statistics really mirrored in our community. So um, I'll let Lacey go ahead. And as you can see on the screen, we have our wonderful um, uh, view of all of our objectives. We're happy to answer questions towards the end of the presentation. All right, thank you for the opportunity to present today and thank you Leah for compiling that data to kind of show the status of racial equity in our community today. So I'm gonna start here by discussing how equity is addressed in the overall Douglas County strategic plan to address housing and homelessness. Now, the purpose of the Equity and Inclusion Work Group is to make sure that our strategies consider the unique needs of different individuals and groups so that every single person has a fair path to housing. Our work group has seven objectives as shown here. First, by 2024, have a clear set of equity goals and a shared vision of equity between all local agencies and government. By 2024, prioritize equity in all community education resources. Make sure that equity is highlighted in existing resources and make sure that information is accessible to everyone. By 2024, have ongoing roles for people with lived experience. This includes having short-term roles beginning this year and then establishing a long-term lived experience advisory board made up entirely of people who know what it's like to go through homelessness. These positions will be paid. By 2025, we want to use our data. Oh. By 2025, I want to use, we want to use our data to track success and sustainability in our work. This means tying data to action and jumping into an action plan if we see things getting worse. By 2026, we aim to focus on equity in policy and budget decisions. Every new project or program must be able to answer one question from the start. How will it reduce disparities by race, gender, disability, age, etc.? How will it meet those different needs? By 2026, we'll target systemic inequities and increase diverse home ownership. This means identifying good government policies that reduce the risk of homelessness, increase accessibility, and uplift historically marginalized groups. By 2027, we'll have tools and resources put together that promote best practices that improve diversity and equity for all service providers in the long term. Those are all the objectives in the detailed plan, and you can scroll there to the second page. You'll see that strategies focus both on short-term and long-term action steps, including processes that consider accountability and sustainability. We're also looking at examples of what's been successful in other communities. Um, the one-pager provides an easy summary here, so you can see those detailed strategies and action steps. I encourage you to read those on, on your own, and of course, you're certainly welcome to reach out to us at any time if you have at any time if you have questions regarding that. Now I'll go ahead and turn it over to Marielle. Great, so a lot of content with all of that. Um, we definitely have some very lofty goals. Um, we're very excited about those goals. What I wanted to, and bo both Lacey and I want to bring your attention to um, today is looking at strategy number six. You can leave it there for just a second. Um, sorry, we'll stick it right there. So you can just take a look at, this is looking at strategy as it pertains to increasing home ownership um, for diverse populations and decreasing the inequity we see uh, for racialized populations. And so jumping into our presentation, we provided slides for you, so we're not going to go into uh, reading every slide for you. Hopefully you've had some chance to digest that, but again, happy to answer questions. So looking to discuss this sixth goal a little bit further by specifically addressing racialized groups that experience inequity in housing. We're here to work to shift those statistics mentioned by Leah um, and create more equity in home ownership um, and in housing in general. This can be done by introducing racial equity housing programs in our community. 
But first, it is imperative that we talk about what the underlying issues are. So if you look at our defining the problem section, uh, we're talking about inequity and how it came to be. And many of these issues surrounding the imbalance of home ownership and affordable housing uh, regarding racialized populations can be you know, traced back to the 1930s and even further when we start talking about segregation within housing, the disproportionate favoring of white communities to be able to purchase and own home and land, and the generational wealth gap that that creates by not allowing people other than white identifying or white racialized individuals to own businesses, own homes, own lands, be the dominant economic force in our community. And so with that, we're seeing over the years, over the decades, decrease in home accessibility and security. Most importantly, as you can see from the uh, homeless population statistics in our own community, and that decrease in the availability to have generational wealth. And so continuing on, as we can see, some of these problems have started to begin to draft some solutions uh, with primarily during the civil rights area where, where we start seeing the enactment of principles such as fair housing, which was revolutionary to how we start looking and framing the idea of equity for all people regardless of how they identify, what their abilities are, and how they look like. But as we can see, that's not enough. We're still seeing the disparities. And so we know that since sometimes the national level of policy change and systemic change is not as quick as we would like it to be, we can do things at a local level. We can do systemic change policy work. We can do programming that will target specific racialized populations in order to bring that inequity out of imbalance and get to more home ownership, more reconciliation of these past transgressions and harm to these communities by addressing specific populations. We saw some success with the enactment of adding protected classes to our anti-discrimination ordinance earlier this year. So we can see in real time that we are starting to shift the conversation of who we are prioritizing. So I'll turn it over to Lacey. We've talked about the problem. Now we can talk to you about some solution. I'm excited to introduce to you a very promising solution that other communities have already begun adopting, which specifically targets racial equity and homeownership through restorative housing programs. They use local history to acknowledge and clearly define injustices committed by local government within a specified time period, and to identify residents that are eligible for restorative housing programs. These programs are actionable on a local level and complementary to any national restorative programs. Now the first example is also the most effective and applicable to our own goals. The city of Evanston, which has a population of about 75,000 people, acknowledged local discriminatory housing practices that were in place from 1919 to 1969. Through the restorative housing program, they laid out very specific goals targeting racial equity and homeownership for black and African American households. They defined ancestor applicants as anyone who lived in the city during the time period of discriminatory policy, direct descendants and anyone 
anyone who could prove that they experienced discrimination in housing after 1969 are also eligible for the program. Their precise definitions around eligibility ensured that the greatest benefits went to those who are most impacted by housing discrimination, while also avoiding legal concerns around racial preference. They started their program by establishing and funding 16 spots that any eligible residents could apply for. The city proved that municipalities could, ena could enact local measures to benefit black residents and successfully target racial equity. However, one limitation was that many eligible residents still could not afford the down payment on a home, even with housing assistance provided through the restorative, restorative housing programs, since it did not cover rental assistance. Our next example of a restorative housing program comes from the city of Santa Monica in California, which stated, which instead focuses on providing rental assistance. After consulting with their local historians, they decided to focus on a specific geographic area um, in their city where displacement of predominantly black communities occurred during the construction of a major highway in the 1950s and 60s. The below market housing of historically displaced households pilot defines households that are prioritized in applications for apartments provided at below market rental prices. These applications first prioritize households facing immediate eviction or displacement, but gives second priority to households and the descendants of those previously displaced from specified neighborhoods during that period of highway construction. This program is another great example of providing straightforward access to affordable housing for predominantly black communities, and in this case, in this case where it faced limitations was in not providing homeownership paths and thus failing to address the loss of generational wealth caused by displacement. Additionally, it was also difficult for applicants to prove their historical connection to the specified neighborhoods. So, a question, Monty, so good. Yeah. Here. Um, it seems like the it's a pretty high barrier to find that historical connection to a relative that was impacted. Was there any, is there any discussion around that barrier? Because that, to me, that's a high barrier to reach. So uh, as we look at these different case studies, we can learn both from their success and challenges in order. Um, what we can learn from these first two case studies is that we can actually basically replicate both of those programs in some form so that we have more opportunities. And by creating more opportunities, um, more ways to apply to hopefully overcome those barriers. And in these communities, they do work with those local historians to kind of um, establish that local context through which you establish that program um, and work to reduce barriers as much as we can based on what we've learned from these other case studies. Yeah. Was your first example Evanston, Illinois? Yes. Okay. And I, I think to add, Monty, to um, what you're asking is a lot of this work was heavily involved within the community and, as Lacey mentioned, with local historians to begin finding out a process um, to better link ancestry. That wasn't the only qualification. It was just one of the conditions that, you know, if you can prove your family, if you are living in that area, you can also, or if you knew you were displaced from that area. So there are many paths that they did choose to make that a reality. And they started with a smaller number of applicants to see that success and to see it grow. So like Lacey said, we could combine programs. I think our last case study will kind of show it on a larger scale. Um, and 
and show how we can start pulling from all of these and not necessarily duplicating them because obviously right. our historical barriers are a little bit different, but how we can partner with, say, the Watkins or with Spencer to really um, dig into, and we already have some information on where that exists because many of those folks still live here today, even if they were displaced. Mm -hmm. Thanks. All right. I just to comment on that, I think that you know the displacement thing's easier to track. But if you were impacted by a red line district, for instance, and you just couldn't get a home loan or whatever, you know, whatever reason, I mean, that's going to be hard to track. So I think <laughs> that's very limiting, and to say you've got to come back and see somebody that was impacted, as opposed to being open to, because probably most everybody's family in some way. Yeah. was impacted whether they can trace that or not I don't know I just to me it just seems like a really big barrier but in that yeah. first example um, the proof that they needed was just that they were a resident during that period during of that redlining Imanti to your to your point too I, mm -hmm. I understand that um, I think one of the points that we're also making is how those steps were done for different municipalities mm -hmm. I think it would be very specific to Lawrence how we would make that work move forward but I think for, for step one or maybe step five or continuing steps would be to um, establish a restorative housing process where we first identify specific documented history and actions that appear reasonably likely to have resulted in specific documentation of inequitable outcomes. And um, Mario has given great opportunity for us to learn from that. Watkins holds a plethora of information great. about those um, those uh, lived experiences where people have t talked about what has gone on and there's lots of history with our um, elders that have lived and been displaced and been still and still are thriving and living here in Lawrence too. So there's, there's a plethora of information and it would take us to dive into that if we really wanted to get to understand what that data looks like for specifically our population of black and indigenous and people of color here to do some of that work. I think it's also good to know that these can be companion program, so we don't have to really right. prioritize uh, direct descendants. We're looking to holistically see of this particular racialized population, of the black population, how do we start creating restorative housing programs? We can look back in history, we can look at redlining, we can look at all of these markers and start opening and creating more context to help people get that um, access that they, they desperately need. Thank you. And also, just to quickly add to that, there's also lots of opportunity for further discussion and community engagement and just kind of working through how do we address these different concerns that come up. Um, and that kind of leads me into our third case study here. The last example comes from the city of Berkeley, which is a project still under development. The Equitable Black Berkeley Project seeks to support the equity and well-being of the local black and African-American community by targeting social systems and policies to include housing, health, birth, and community programming. It includes providing rental units, financial assistance to homeowners, and other forms of urban renewal targeting predominantly black neighborhoods. Despite still being under development, what makes it so successful is how Tactfully, they pro approach community engagement, acquiring feedback and building strong community support. Their programs take an intersectional approach by addressing housing together with other community health programs targeting racial equity. They may later face challenges of their own, but it is important to learn from what's been successful so far. 
And then, so these case studies give us the foundation to begin the process of brainstorming and developing our own locally based restorative housing program. The maps here display the history of redlining and the ongoing issues of health disparities in the city of Lawrence. We have the opportunity to define perhaps our own ancestor applications and or to target geographic areas where we see these ongoing health disparities and to replicate the success of each example that we've seen thus far. So why is all of this important, right? Why should we care about this? Leah set us up perfectly for this conversation by looking not only at national statistics, because we can see that. We can see that with each case study, that there were obvious points of history of discrimination, of redlining, of urban revitalization that greatly impacted. But we can see that here in Lawrence as well. And so as she stated, black ownership specifically in our community, that rate is only 23.9%. And 29% of households that are black population are below the poverty line. So we're seeing that lack of home ownership. We're seeing that ineligibility to increase generational wealth for this community. So we know that this problem is tied directly to our community. Additionally, we can see some of the historical significance and how it ties to public health. As you can see from that map previously, Eastern Lawrence is where we saw a majority of that diverse population as far as the historical mapping of um, redlining. And as you can see from these age expectancies, five to 10 years less life expectancy for those folks living in that area. Additionally, we did have racial covenants in this very city. Uh, West Hills neighborhood did have a covenant not allowing anyone other than white residents to own homes. Thankfully, in 2006, that was uh, removed by a Kansas bill, but that existed until 2006. So that reality, again, is still very prominent within our community. But with that, there's always hope. There are things that we can concretely do. There are policies that we can change. And we can address the historical and systematic disparities of our community. We can create more homeownership for those experiencing the most oppression through community conversation, intentional programming, reconciling with our harmful past, and re creating real policy that changes affordable housing. Lawrence can be an example. We can set the example, like these communities, of how to be a strong community, how to be a welcoming community, and how to be an equitable community. So we not only can see the rest of our population flourish, but we can really work from the ground up to start talking about and fixing these inequities. As you can see from the next slide, we do have um, some examples of what we can do, some repair programs, some uh, different resources that we can look at. And finally, in 1884, and just to segue into this a little bit better, we also have opportunity um, to further address racial disparities um, through local reparations in our local context with the Native American population. And so in 1884, Haskell University was once known as the Indian Industrial Training School, where 
Children were separated from their families and stripped of their cultural identities, creating lasting generational harm and trauma. Um, this local historical context grants us both the responsibility and the opportunity to expand our restorative programs to include Native American residents. And we have this wonderful university that we can also speak to and partner with in order to make that a reality. Um, so that's just a quick little suggestion on how we can make this program even more impactful. Um, I'm gonna end it by reading off a quote uh, from the Douglas County Assessment on Homelessness. Groups experiencing substantial disparities include black or African Americans whose representation in the population experiencing homelessness is nearly five times higher than in the general population. Likewise, American Indian, Alaska Native, or indigenous people represent a disproportionately high percentage of those experiencing homelessness, with representation three to four times higher than in the general population. And so this is why we chose these populations to be the focus of our presentation today, and just all all of these examples that we've seen that do exist in communities today um, give us a great opportunity to be able to address racial equity impactfully in our own community as well. Thank you. And yeah, I think do you have any questions? With that, this is the plan for uh, Douglas County City of Lawrence partnership. This is our intention is to move forward with looking into in more depth what this type of uh, restorative housing programming will look like. Um, we are always in favor of collaboration and looking for um, those groups who are focused on home ownership and housing and how we can make programs like these unique to our community and a reality for our community. So that's why we focused on this today, but of course there will be more of our strategic plan that will be unfolding in the next few years. Thank you. So Thank you. how do we communicate these initiatives and these objectives with, uh, with the people who are putting forth proposals to us, who are, who are essentially who we work with to provide resources and the ability to create affordable housing yeah. in our community how do we how do we mesh this initiative with that uh, with, with that group of yeah so I think a, a great way of doing this and of course this is going to have to be phased is we we first need to identify what exactly in this particular uh, racialized population uh, by having community sessions by doing more research by partnering with walk-ins with Spencer um, to figure out where we're lying and then it's all about talking about how we get more development more housing more access to these folks so I think in partnership uh, a great conversation starter maybe with developers is focusing um, housing for the specific population. And a lot of these case studies, housing was built specifically for these groups or housing was made accessible. Um, and so I think within that sort of partnering, maybe we can look into how do we start creating and giving more opportunity. Um, but like I said, I think it's going to have to be a little bit phased. We're going to have to get into the Lawrence-specific research. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Just to further add on to that, it has been the practice of the AHAB to this point um, primarily to be uh, to 
you know, issue a NOFO and utilize the trust funds based on the proposals that are coming to the AHAB. Um, uh, the AHAB can also be more proactive in designing programs that meet particular needs that are not already being met by others in the community. And so the trust funds don't solely have to be utilized as a grant. They could also be utilized to um, develop new programs within the city of Lawrence that target some of the specific goals, again, that aren't being met elsewhere in the community. So that's another way that the AHAB could think of it as well. Mark, go ahead. Uh, Mark Bueller, um, do you believe under the current criteria for tenancy in a rental unit or um, ability to be a homeowner, do you believe that we have current barriers to the populations you're speaking of? And, and they would be what? You want to take this? Go ahead. There, there's a number of barriers to to housing. Um, I think one of the big ones is, well, a couple of big ones are just criminal history and eviction history, credit credit history, and just how difficult it is today for people to climb the social ladder uh, and build gen build family wealth um, when they're starting at the bottom. And again, we have people starting at the bottom because they were held back by our history of systemic racism. Um, but would an income limitation or threshold still be in its, uh, I, I'm, I'm, trying to fig I'm trying to figure if the qualification to obtain, I, I understand the criminal record, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to get sorted on some of the other one. Okay. I'm thinking for just a moment no, because can you do you want to clarify? Take it? So you're you're wondering I, well, I, I'm, why income qualifications. Let's, let's for the sake of discussion say what we think we're doing. This board and the grants we make. We think it's good and we think it gives opportunities to lots of people through our programming, through the housing authority, through tenants to homeowners, through all the people that are engaged to help us find the people to occupy the units. Mm -hmm. we're, not see we're not seeking specifically the people for the units. We're trying to fund the structure, get it built, and, and let others fill them, if you will. Right. So if they're so, bringing programming that would specifically address and say, you know, we are building with the idea in mind that when we do application processing, there will be an element of equity. That's a consideration to take into priority. I, I want to know what that looks like. Okay. With adding, with adding some new programs with more specific eligibility criteria, um, it allows us to more specifically target racial disparities and create a pathway to bring more people in to benefit from those programs so that we can start to see those disparities balance out more. And that's something that we, that's what we really want to accomplish here because as Leah's data showed, um, we have very significant racial disparities in housing and in, in home ownership that we have not been able to successfully successfully to to successfully address um, just 
in all these past years, and so it's very important for us to determine what is it going to take to successfully reduce those disparities and to intentionally target that. Does that kind of help answer is, the question? Is education and jobs part of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I okay. think we see those disparities highlighted in both of those areas as well. Um, all of those uh, different subgroups intersect this ideology of inequity. We see it in education, we see it in employment, that there is mirroring statistics that will show great inequity within specifically black populations and other BIPOC populations that, yes, that is a huge barrier. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. And to add on to that in terms of employment and education, et cetera, when we were developing the anti-poverty community plan, which is a component of the Douglas County Community Health Plan, um, when we were looking at the data around um, income and poverty in Douglas County, again, looking at it from an equity, um, rooted in equity, um, we saw those racial disparities and the plan is targeted for decreasing uh, racial disparities in wealth and income. And so we have specific strategies related to that plan for um, BIPOC employment and entrepreneurship, um, increasing equity around BIPOC um, early childhood education where it really starts. Um, and, um, and, and looking at the income disparity. So just to say that the income and employment side is being looked at in another community plan. Okay, I think Shannon wanted to. Yeah, so um, Shannon Allery, Housing Authority. Um, given with what happened with the Supreme Court last week, um, which I will say is quite horrifying, um, I really want to know if any of these programs that you have outlined here got challenged in court and if they survive those challenges and uh, if we go down this path, my first thing would be we need to hire a consultant who can get us to a solution that we then don't immediately end up in a lawsuit. Um, because, you know, what really matters is that we're able to do it, not that we say we want to. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges that we can see is prioritizing specific populations, which might be your primary concern. Um, I think a great example is looking to see what Berkeley is doing. That was one of the, since they are still coming online with their programming, how they're addressing that. Um, I believe Evanston also had similar concerns where they did work out and have um, legal help in that world. So I, it has been done. It has not been challenged in courts as far as we know. Um, because these programs I'm, ins I'm ensuring are in tandem with other programs. I think the goal here is to address these specific inequities and start building that, but a lot of the community conversation and education is going to have to be, why are we doing this and why does it make sense for our entire community to prioritize these populations first? And then like you said, really get that legal backing to ensure that we're not prioritizing and doing it in a way that is unlawful or, or unfair, but 
as we're seeing now, fairness doesn't even exist in the balance of inequity with these populations. So really, we, we have a really great case we can make. But um, I would really encourage, and part of our strategy in this group is to be in connection with these groups that are doing this work, that have these very big dreams, um, and seeing how it's playing out for them, and not reinventing the wheel, um, but seeing what works. And I think that's just an intelligent programming and policy um, strategy in the first place. Thank you. I, I just want to make one comment, and that was one of the first, very first things you guys said, which I think is something that's implementable quickly for us. And I know how we all loved going through the matrix and, <laughs> and the NOFO. But what you said is, how will this, I'm going to say project, as a question for our applicants, reduce inequity? Is it, make them put into action what their project brings to the table for us to meet this goal. Well, and, so that'd and, be a, you know, yeah. that, that can be, it could be in a number of things depending on the agency and who's making the application, but it would at least answer a question for us of how we're, how we are, how this funding would push this agenda item. Well, and uh, Shannon, our rehousing authority, I would just like to add on, and I think I, had this when we were discussing the matrix. I don't even want them to say how they're doing it. I want to see what are their current units that they own, what do they look like, what is their racial makeup in them, um, and what efforts will they take to make sure that BIPOC communities know these units are available. Um, because that is one of the hardest areas for me to judge because everyone is like, yes, we're all for, you know, diversity and, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, it's we nothing have, actionable. Yeah, right. There's nothing in there to be evaluated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think having a stronger matrix in that and it falling into alignment with a programming like this. Not necessarily that they have to adhere to the specifics of you know, a restorative housing program, but that it is buying into the idea of restorative housing can be very important. And I think both of us would really love to see a more concerted effort among those who own property and who are developing property to be more straightforward in their um, goal of being more equitable. Yeah, I think this is Christina Gentry. Um, I think experimenting with racially explicit remedies in the places that are ready for them are are what where we're at. I think we're we're ready for them. These conversations, the data is reflective of that. Um, I think designing programs that take the legacy of racial discrimination into account is not obvious. Um, but today, our federal law prevents us from even learning to do that work. And so I think we're walking in the right steps, but we don't have a really good understanding of what that looks like. We have great examples that we've been shared with today by Lacey and by Mariel, and what that looks like for Douglas County, we'll have to see. I think you were also, um, Chairperson, you were you advised us wisely uh, not to not for us to strategize and move to solutions and how we, this open discussion, I, I feel is really great because it's lively, but I do want us to consider 
consider um, an assignment of individuals of our time commitment that we can give to make make meetings and make the meetings that um, Lacey and that Mariel have for this conversation in a broader aspect and then maybe we assign two people uh, board members to contribute to those conversations that are continuing th with the city strategic plan and make ourselves in alignment with those goals so, so that we can bring that back to our larger group October specials meeting and then to also be in alignment with our goal of increasing racial equity in housing um, and that so that we can take two of the members here and we can continue those conversations and bring them back to our October specials meeting I think would be great to continue this ball moving um, as we understand what strategies look like uh, for Lawrence so that would be an action, maybe a call right. to action to ask others if they would want to. Mariel, I'm not sure about your participation and what it looks like for your roster as it stands, but maybe two people from our um, AHAB inviting them into that space would be something we could yeah, maybe we, actionably do. Absolutely, so our work group is comprised of volunteers, most of them social service providers um, and folks who have direct experience. Like Lacey mentioned, one of our strategic plans is to have lived experience groups and those two people paid positions and so we're always welcoming more folks to sit in in our meetings to provide um, their expertise their conversation their opinions on what we're doing because we cannot live in a siloed or exist in a siloed situation where we think these are the recommendations um, we really need that input of the community members who are most involved so um, we typically meet every third Thursday uh, virtually at 9 in the morning via Zoom. Um, we're always open to have folks participate in those meetings. Usually they're very specific uh, content, but if we do have uh, a little bit of heads up, then we can um, definitely uh, theme those or create an agenda that will be uh, formidable to the people that attend. And then uh, as uh, Christina said, we're always open to sitting down and having conversations. We are just uh, co-leads in this, and so we're the ones that show up and talk about this, but everyone in our group has um, such amazing knowledge and expertise and works and communicates in specific facets of this group that really make me proud, and so it can only get better. And so that's an, always an open invitation to reach out and meet with us. Okay. So this Monty Sokup chair. So what I think I heard Christina say <laughs> was that similar to what we did with the code update, we would essentially have a subcommittee of a couple people that would sit in on this group and bring information back to us, not unlike Phil's doing on code. Sure. Yes. Is that what I heard? That's what I would like okay. to see. And I understand that I am not the person who is the form of, or, you know, or continues of participation or, or in, includes participation mm -hmm. of others. So I would lean heavily on Marielle and Lacey for that uh, guidance, but I don't feel that it would be not as of use as this conversation right. has proved to be uh, something moving to strategies that we can implement right. in our goals, that we can't continue to have those conversations with people who are already doing the work. Right. Any discussion on that? Any thoughts on that, anybody? Yeah, I'd just like to echo that a group's already doing the work. Let's not create another group. Right. <laughs> um, and, and we might as well join in. <laughs> All right. Leah, we have no structural issues with that, correct? Okay. All right, then I'm going to suggest that we nominate a couple of people to be on that 
committee or on that subgroup of people that was gonna, is going to interact with that, their committee. I'm open for nominations. Um, I'm going to nominate myself in that special, in that group. Um, and I would like to also uh, understand or, or actually make a point to say that um, a lot of this equity inclusion group does heavily rest upon people of color and women. So I would like to uh, have us challenge ourselves to see um, if we can't open that dialogue to include demographics and that are um, dominant, uh, that are not uh, BIPOC or women, uh, so that mm -hmm. we can uh, get a di different and understanding and perspectives that uh, will definitely move this work forward in a way that's intentional. Mm -hmm. Mr. Chairman, okay. you have a volunteer on your screen. Oh, I do? I thought. Did, someone, no. did someone else want to? I thought Erica was waving. Representative Lawrence Habitat. I was going to uh, volunteer myself just as Habitat is working in that space of advancing Black home ownership and restorative housing programs as well. But speaking to Christina's point, I will um, leave a spot open for a dem different demographic, but we'll reach out to Marielle and uh, Leah myself in my professional position and not as an AHAB representative. All right, do you have anyone else that either wants to volunteer to serve or wants to nominate someone? All right, so I guess, um, at this point, I would move forward with Christina and Erica for lack of anyone else volunteering. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm gonna. So I'm. I'm gonna ask that. I guess someone make a motion to uh, elect Erica and Christina as our subcommittee members for this group, Racial, racial Inequity. the formal group. name of the group? Oh, we have the longest title in the world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we are the Housing and Homeless Strategic Equity and Inclusion Work Group. <laughs> wow, that is a mouthful. Yeah, I think we maybe nominated a name change, Leah. I'm not 100% <laughs> sure. Okay. Not any easier uh, than that. Mr. Shannon, is so moved. So, all right. Second. So we have a second. Okay. Phil's second. Any other comments, questions by anybody? On the okay. I'm going to call the roll and we will have our representatives. Sarah Waters? Yes. Phil Engelhart? Yep. Mark Bueller? Yes. Christina Gentry? Yes. Erica Zimmerman? Yes. Shannon Aury? Yes. Dana Ortiz? Yes. Thomas Howe? Yes. Trent Santee? Yes. Monty Sokup? Yes. Motion passes 10-0. You are launched. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you all so much. We Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lacey and Marciela. Thank you all. Thank you. Okay.
with that, we are moving, and thank you everybody for that good conversation. Um, we're moving to the re up, receive the update on the Ahab Land Development Code Subcommittee and receive an update and consider approving the subcommittee recommendations for the code update. So uh, I think I'm gonna turn that over Bill. That's fine. Um, he is, we have the update from uh, the code committee <coughs> and then Phil has basically drafted a letter um, and then has made six pages of comments on the recommendations. Oh, I believe. Is that correct? Well, sort of, comments, yeah. Those, those were on comments the, on, on, on module one. Yeah. Okay, on module one. Yeah, yeah. So that was in your uh, material, so I'm going to turn it okay. over to Phil. Yeah, that's a lot of detail, and you don't want to dive that deep. Uh, what I would say is that this uh, process is, uh, is uh, sometimes it seems like it's moving glacially, at other times it looks like an avalanche and and right now you're kind of at the first avalanche stage because clarion the contractor has put out the draft one module which outlines the base zoning district and has a few little teasers in there about standards uh, I would say at the top that um, based on the schedule that was distributed at the steering committee meeting, the 19th through the 21st of this month, there will be, quote, topic meetings, unquote, with times and locations to be determined. Uh, it's not clear to me how Ahab and the community at large will be contributing to this endeavor, these topic meetings and so forth, uh, so that that remains to be determined. Uh, I think we need to be prepared to offer and reiterate our perspectives uh, in this, in that time frame, in that 719 to 721 time frame, we, you know, we need this thing is is now in an avalanche mode, and then there'll be a glacial mode down the road here a bit. But, but you know, it's it's coming pretty fast and furious here. Uh, so, you know, we we need to be prepared whether it's done as an individual like I did with that six pages or it's done as as a larger Ahab sanctioned thing I don't know so I'll leave that alone uh, I would say that that based on my analysis of the draft and and some very fruitful conversations uh, with Clarion Elizabeth is is the principal's name uh, it seems to me and again I'm just speaking for myself it seems to me that that philosophically there seem to be reasonably aligned with with what I perceive as as Ahab's overall goals and intents I mean it seems to me like it anyhow so as I noted in the in the draft cover letter you know as you go through module one 
you know, districts and uses. Uh, you can see that, that some, some of them, you know, line up pretty daggone well with, with the draft recommendations, which you all have a copy of. Uh, you know, so some of them seem to line up pretty well. Uh, again, in that cover letter, I, I make the point, I think it's in the cover letter, I make the point that, you know, how well the, the code ultimately serves the purposes of affordable housing, a lot of that is really going to depend upon the nitty-gritty details of the implementing standards and the administration and procedures. We, have, we haven't really seen any of that yet. I mean, you know, this, this first piece is just, you know, the, the broad ge geography and, and, some, and some condensing, you know, old zoning districts and so forth and so on. Uh, so, that, you, you know, that, that you need to understand that, that a lot of the, the meat is still to come. Uh, again. So, so, Phil, is there, are there things you're seeing at this point? that damage or impair our affordable housing efforts and the things that we've put forward is that, you know, we want increased density. We want you know, ADUs by right. We want all these, we want several of these things that we think will help us and help developers get affordable housing on the ground. Is there anything in the, that appears to be in the way of that, that we need to, that this group should speak for or against? I think, and I get that there's a lot in the details. Yeah, there. I mean, really, there's a tremendous really amount in the details. I, I will say that that when the module one draft came out, one of my in the six or seven pages of crap that I wrote, uh, one of the things that really concerned me was the treatment of of duplexes under the new R2, the new the new low density zoning designation, which is the majority of Lawrence. Mm -hmm. It's 26% of the zone property in Lawrence. But even though their use table had only by special permit, Elizabeth then said no that it was going to be permit by right. So that that was one of the flags that that caught me initially. Uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. I'd, I'd kill everybody here. Well, so. Give me an example of that. What do you mean? You're, you're concerned about that. Well, what's good or bad about this? from from Ahab's perspective? There's good and bad about putting everything, but you know, the from Ahab's perspective, if we want density and we want infill density, okay, if you only permit duplexes by right, or, excuse me, by special permit, then that means every do, my understanding of it would be that every, that every duplex that would be put forward as a potential candidate to fill an infill spot, okay, would need to go through public hearing. Okay, you know, that they would all be discretionary zoning. So you support the by right. Yes. I think that Ahab's position would be. I want to know what you think. I think Ahab will decide for Ahab. What do you? Well, think? I'm saying I'm trying to be consistent with Ahab to the extent that I could be. What do I think of it personally? Yeah. I think that if it is properly done, which requires a very Lawrence-specific neighborhood by neighborhood analysis, if it's properly done, 
and the standards are, are proper, which include considerable storage, okay, which is my pet peeve, uh, if the standards are, implementing standards are properly done and the administration and procedures are properly done, then you can achieve dense, infill density in Lawrence and make it a better community. By That's right. a big ask, but by, it could be done. By right. By right. Okay. That, uh, so I wanted you to clarify where you were. Okay. Okay. And, and Shannon Owry, uh, Housing Authority, ha have they discussed um, height, the ability the, to build up? You know, a lot of those things, uh, th there, are dimensional, there, are, there are dimensional materials in there in terms of, of lot width, setbacks, and all of those things. They are in the draft stage, and quite frankly, I don't pay as much attention to those things. You know, my lens is fairly specific, okay? And so I didn't pay as much attention to those kinds of considerations as, as I probably should have. But yes, they are, there are. Jeff can speak to that. Yeah, building heights is part of module one. That's still in the drafting stage, but they are looking at the building heights currently. To increase them, reduce them, what? Yes. Just depends. We don't know which way they want to go. It's, it's to look at everything and, and anything. So depending upon what the conversation is and what the community asks for, that's what we'd be looking at. I mean, m my perspective is that the only solution to affordable housing in Lawrence, Kansas, is that we go higher. We're a city between two rivers. There's only so much land. And the only answer is to go higher. So, I mean, that's my personal opinion. That's my professional opinion. Um, and uh, okay. I, I personally see no downside, right? I mean, we've owned Babcock Place, which is seven stories since, you 60s. know. 60s. 1973. Okay. And uh, it does just fine. It hurts nobody. The one thing I would just make comment to, just remind everybody, is part of the code assessment, there were three special topics that were called out as, as you know, like threads that were going to run through this entire code. One of them was sustainability, the other one was equity, and the third one was affordable housing. So, I mean, that is baked into the whole route of the code is to have those kind of things. And part of the conversation they have is... Uh, you know, not just accessory dwelling use, but parking standards, waivers, um, different levels of things, uh, sizes of those components that may go in there that have effect, that effect on housing. So there's a lot of that that's in the mix. So just kind of, we've only seen a third of it effectively. There's still two more modules to come that'll have a lot more detail with it, but just wanted to, you know, make that comment. That is still in that code assessment. That was one of the three hallmarks that we were looking for. Could, could I ask you a question, Jeff? Yeah. What do you perceive that the 19th through the 21st is going to entail when, when Elizabeth is back in town and we're going to have these meetings and, and this stuff? What, what, how do you see that laying out at this juncture? Well, it's still a little bit in development, so, you know, this may fluctuate a little bit, sure. but it's really to have conversations with people about what does that assessment, or excuse me, what does that module look like? And what are you seeing in there that is giving you pause, that is giving you excitement, that is kind of catching your attention? So it's not really to kind of finalize it. It's really to continue those conversations and say, here is our first draft. Here's what we've got. What's good, what's not. Who are these people that you're conversing with? 
You're saying we're going to have conversations. Who who are those people that are involved in those conversations? It's part of the conversation. We're still working on that to see if we have the original groups that we pulled together at the very beginning of the process back about a year ago, about a year ago. That was you know just you know we're going to have a meeting on affordable housing or sustainability and just have people come give us those input. That's still in the works. We're still trying to get that worked out with Clarion on what those details will be. So I don't have a okay. lot of answer, but more. <laughs> okay. And and what is the uh, provision to provide people notice of these things? We try to give as much notice as we can. It's with the update and the process, there's not really a, a specific code notice that has to go out as part of it, but we do try to put it out through our website and through our mailing list to let people know when those are coming up. We also try to reach out to people that have engaged with us previously when they want to have those kind of reconnections with us on those. Well, could I ask that the AHAB be notified of all these meetings? Sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I there may be an issue where if more than you attend, there may be a quorum issue that you'd have to be addressed with, but we can work with Leah to make sure that that does not kind of can have an Open Meetings Act violation. Right. Yeah. That would be only if we were discussing something in front of us. Well, we might have to look at that because this may be, since it's affordable housing and that is the business of the board, that may be in that gray area where it may be a coma issue, but we'll but, check in on that. But attendance wouldn't violate that. We will have to check oh. into that to control. Okay. <laughs> See what I know? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Mr. Uh, Chairman? Well, go ahead. Um, yeah. Oh, were you done? No, no, no. No, you go. Here's, uh, and I'm asking a question, having not read near what is available for me to read. So, ignorance 101. Um, is expansion of the city of Lawrence zonable area for housing a part of the code revision and the reason I say it from an affordable housing standpoint we've we've been a city for a hundred and whatever years and so will you stop the, the the picture right here and we say we need infill it's taken us 150 years to create an environment where we need infill okay I guess my point is, without area to infill, <laughs> increased area to infill, our housing problem will get worse for the greater market, the greater market meaning numbers, not better, <laughs> the greater market, and also negatively impact the affordable housing market. Absolutely. I can't say that any stronger. If we stand around and believe that the solution to our problems are within the boundaries of the city of Lawrence today, we are DOA. We have no opportunities or hope to help others that don't have what we have. We have none. So I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> I can, I have, and I don't want to so, leave my soapbox, so the but question, I'm off. The question there was, does the code address annexation? annexation. <laughs> you know, and obviously application to annexation is really where that lies. Probably. Maintenance of annexable ground. Well, the, the code, let, let me short circuit Jeff there. I mean, part of the purpose of, of the code is to ensure orderly development in newly, in newly accepted ground i mean that's that's what consistent with plan 2040 consistent consistent with equity 
sustainability, affordability, okay? I mean, that's, that's, why, you're revi I mean, that's why you're revising the code. But if you go back to the matrix that I put in the cover letter, mm -hmm. that's why I, it's got three dimensions, okay? You have income, you have tenure, and then you have infill scattered site versus greenfields large area. Those, those are the three dimensions that you hope that the code addresses from, a pers from, from my perspective, and I think from Ahab's perspective, you, you, you want the code to, to do the best job it can to, to get big A and little a in all of those boxes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that but, but I've heard you say you're, you're not, a, you're a representative there, one of them. I've heard you say to me, you're not a real fan of this Greenfield stuff. No. Well, we could have long philosophical conversations you're about that. You're representing affordable housing on this greater committee. I'm glad you are. But, and, and not that you carry the day or I no, do no, or anybody, no. right? But my point is, I think we have to be proactive about Greenfield development for the benefit of affordable housing. I, this is Leah Rosen. That brings up a good question in my mind. Okay. And that is um, in the draft recommendations, there was, and I'm going to find it here, uh, zoning districts. I got to find the draft recommendation. Basically, it was a zoning district question. Uh, like overlay districts okay. and things like that. And have we not got to that? Because I didn't see any of that in addressed in anything you wrote. So I'm just, have we not gotten there? Or is that something that's off the table or what? Still working through it. Okay. A lot Still more to come. Progress. And back to the, the question that, that uh, Mr. Bueller mentioned there, annexation. It, right. Zoning code doesn't touch on annexation because that's a process governed by state statute. So it's all governed at that different level. So zoning can only specify if the land is annexed, what can happen as part of the zoning. It doesn't talk about annexing in that, in that practicality. May I comment? I have, since Plan 95, and maybe the one before it, I've been reading those things. And we talk about goals and hopes all over the place. And infill development is in the know today. It's, it is a buzzword. It is what we're after. It's what we're up to. It's what we look at in order to move our affordable housing goal ahead. So to say that, nah, that's all statutory. <laughs> The hopes and dreams of this community for the next however many years this, this plan covers needs to talk about creating, recognizing we put ourselves in a box currently. And it needs to recognize that, that we need to reasonably expand uh, uh, fiscally all the things you need to do. We need to reasonably expand those for the benefit of affordable housing opportunities for the people we're trying to serve. Okay, Trent's got his hand up. I want to acknowledge that. Yeah, uh, Trent Santee, Lawrence Home Builders Rep. Uh, I think we got a big conversation going on, but for sake of kind of wheeling it back together here, uh, a direct kind of connection would be is, uh, did urban reserve zoning make the cut or what happened to that in this process? 
I, Jeff would I, be the one to answer that, Trent. I, I think he's looking it up. It's one of those few I don't have off the top of my head. So <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah. I'll give a little context of why I asked that specific question. Um, in the annexa annexation process, the way it's currently being done is a lot of people bring the land in as urban reserve. That lets them get it annexed and then they go through the zoning process and then uh, kind of hash out the details of, of the specifics of what that land will be and what the actual zoning is. Um, in some of the earlier meetings, there was conversation of urban reserve getting um, essentially deleted and that zoning no longer uh, uh, existing. Um, the thought process was, well, you just annex it annex the land with the current the zoning you're applying for uh, but there was a significant discussion about how that would uh, essentially make it much harder to annex the land because you would have to do all the zoning uh, requirement work up front and and take a risk of getting denied and so there's a significant amount of money and time spent on that process and so there was some serious concerns about if urban reserve got deleted it would make annexation uh, essentially impossible Uh, in, in the current draft, urban reserve is still a, a category that's been held. Okay. Okay. So that that would be at least a uh, a neutral setting of um, not make, making the annexation harder. So I think that, um, that that's a good thing. All right. This is, this is Monty. Soak up chair. I'm gonna, we got about twenty minutes left, and um, we have another agenda item. Um, I don't want to cut anybody off too prematurely, but uh, we need to probably move on to our next item. Is there anything burning that well, are, are we going are we going to try to submit this stuff yeah. to, to somebody? Yeah. Monty, can I? Yeah, go ahead. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. The original intent of forming an AHAB Land Development Code Update Subcommittee was so that the AHAB could submit a letter of recommendation with specific recommendations to the Code Update Steering Committee and the City Commission. Mm -hmm. And um, I think at this point we have a good general set of recommendations that are being made. There are a couple areas that the board needs to look at and discuss um, where there may not be a unanimous agreement on. And Monty, to your point, at this point, I don't think we have time to go over those specific recommendations in this meeting, but <clears throat> really that's that's where we need to move, is looking over what recommendations a subcommittee has come up with and getting the AHAB to approve or deny or whatever the set of recommendations so that we can submit that letter. Um, at this point, we are at such a time boundary. I don't, I don't know, Chair, if you'd like to try and look at some of those recommendations today and table the next agenda item or bring this back next month. But I think it really is vital that we look at the specific recommendations that are being made and get a vote on those because we are, as time goes on, we're having less of an opportunity to have influence over the drafts that are being developed. Yeah. So we have the, I guess, we have the AHAB Land Development Code Subcommittee draft recommendations. Um, I guess uh, next month, probably, we would like to 
be able to either endorse these or not endorse these or have a discussion about specific points. So I would just say that over the course of a month, take a look at these. If there's some that you feel strongly against, I mean, this is what our sub our subcommittee group came up with. Yes. So if there's something that we need to talk about specifically in any of these recommendations, come prepared next month to talk about specific and we'll, we'll kind of like we did, God, I hate to even say this with the NOFO. <laughs> we'll go through this point by point and try to keep our discussion short and concise. And if we can agree on equity impact, then we'll move on. And if we can agree on ADUs, we'll move on. And we're gonna have to you know, rely on our subcommittee to dive into the details and make that happen at the committee, you know, at the, in the sure. process. Sure. But I think we need to get to a point where we can say, yes, I can stand behind these subcommittee recommendations or no fill. We can okay. talk about a few okay. of them and, and, or if you disagree, you know, any, whoever can disagree and we'll talk about some specific things on that list. But I think we're just gonna have to go through it line by line. And can, can I make a comment not, there? Sure. I would say given that that there's going to be another set of meetings and mm -hmm. so forth, I, th I think personally that it would be advisable that there be sort of a, an addenda to, to the, those draft recommendations, the, the ones that you have sitting there in front mm -hmm. of you, that, that there be another page or, or something that reflects where the avalanche is at as of you know the 20th of July or the 21st of July so that it, it's not only that that couple of pages but there there'll be some some updates on those if you will D does that make any sense or not or is that even not is that too well can can the subcommittee revise this and and make it more concise so that what we have next month to look at would be where we are if there's some of this that's been yes no that's more writing than i want to do if i if i could just attach an addendum to what we already have then okay. then I, i'm all right with that but i don't want i don't want to re, re, rewrite the entire thing i mean i'm not bragging or anything like that but that was a lot of work to to get to that to that stage no, no okay so is that well, I guess if the subcommittee <laughs> wants to do an addenda, we can look at this and the addenda. Is that is that is that re, I mean is that reasonable? I mean I'm I'm not try, trying to well, I just push stuff. Make sure, I mean, no, I just, just want to make sure to we, got, we have something to review that we can look at and it's concise enough and not too far into the weeds that you know because we're not going to be able to get down to you know. Uh, height the buildings <laughs> that is not something we need to be we need to say we want to have the opportunity to increase density which means number right. of units on a lot height of height of a building on a lot i mean you know increasing density is 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 what we need to do to have the affordable bring the affordable component how that gets done in the code is up to you to help you know deliver within the subcommittee so we need to keep this list short enough that it's and, and, and okay, uh, okay, I'm I'm with you. If if everybody else is generally in agreement, if they're not, then I, am. then I think we're general. Are we 
generally in agreement with these recommendations. I mean, generally, there maybe there's a few yeah. sticking points. I think we're all pretty much. I'm seeing a lot of head shaking, nodding, not shaking, yeah, nodding. <laughs> so, okay. With that, we're going to move on okay. to the next agenda item. Thank you, Phil, for your report and all your work on this. It's the level of detail is incredible. <laughs> You've taken that dive. Mr. Chairman, I have one quick yeah. question, if that's sure. all right. Um, is, uh, is Nicholas uh, in this subcommittee too? Who is the other representative from AHA? Is Nicholas the other? Nick is the other subcommittee member? Well, it's Karen and Nick and okay. Christina and Erica and, and me. Okay. It's a big it's a subcommittee. Okay. Okay. That's Very good. Thank you. Okay. All right. Item four, we got 10 minutes, so we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna get there. Um, consider staff recommendation to allocate up to $90,000 in the 2024 Affordable Housing Trust Fund for the Lawrence Affordable Housing Assessment. I'm gonna let you take that, Leah. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chair. This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator. Um, so I attached um, an overview to the agenda about why I'm making this recommendation, why staff is making the recommendation to um, allocate up to $90,000. And I, I apologize, this says 2023 affordable housing trust funds, that should read 2024. So out of the next round of funding to support and enable an updated housing assessment. And I will um, go over the high points of the recommendation letter, but uh, please also review that if you haven't already. Um, so some context is that our last housing assessment was done in 2018. <clears throat> And um, that was right at the beginning of when the city had established the affordable housing trust funds. And we're really looking for one, an overall <clears throat> assessment and analysis of the uh, overall Lawrence housing market in, in addition to affordability needs, but um, recommendations for how to best utilize the trust funds and strategies for allocating and prioritizing trust funds. So that was really the um, goal and intent of the first assessment. Now we he here we are five years later, we've been through a pandemic that has drastically shifted the housing market in Lawrence. Um, so over, <laughs> over the past five years, um, housing and market conditions have substantially changed. Home prices have risen by 69% in Lawrence in the past five years. Mortgage rates have almost doubled and the average rent has increased by over 350, uh, sorry, $350 a month. New home building has slowed, that, are, that strange and already tight um, market with low supply. Um, and the rise in home sales, rental price, and inflation has caused an increase in local housing security. It's caused an increase in evictions and homelessness in our community, particularly around vulnerable populations who are already on that edge, um, that were already experiencing housing instability. Um, we all know that there's the Panasonic plant being developed and that's anticipated to put a further strain on our housing market. And meanwhile, employment, um, has employment patterns have changed. More people are um, working from home that enables them to move, which they have, move, migrate to other nearby communities where they can work from home with a lower cost of living, where housing is more affordable and, 
every surrounding community. And this has also impacted, as you all know, um, our schools staying open. Several schools have closed and the district is looking into housing affordability and families moving out of the district as a key influencer to that. Um, so at this point, although we did have a um, study five years ago, the market is very different today. To be the best stewards of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, it's imperative that the board have a keen understanding of the current local affordable housing and housing market and how our investments will provide affordable and attainable housing for people who live and work in Lawrence. Um, so that we can be making smart and strategic prioritization of investments that can revitalize neighborhoods, keep our schools open, support our local workforce, improve public health, and decrease homelessness. And that requires investing in the most needed and appropriate housing types to drive strategic outcomes so that we can best work with local developers to build the unique housing types needed for our community. Um, so best practice for municipal housing plans are that we help to drive the housing that's developed based on local need. And developers want this information. When they meet with me, they want to know granular level of detail, such as how many bedrooms are needed, in what neighborhoods, what size units. At this time, we don't have that data. If you look at other community housing plans, they go really into detail about, okay, what is the, not only AMI, but um, how many new builds, how many um, uh, rehabs will be done, how many bedrooms for each of the subpopulations. And um, it, it, again, to be the best stewards of this community fund, it's imperative that we're making start, smart strategic decisions based on available data. Yes, we need more housing in general. Um, However, the market is eh, adequately <laughs> uh, meeting the needs of folks of over 150 to 180% AMI. Um, for this fund, and again, to be the best stewards of the fund, I highly recommend that the AHAP support a new assessment so that we can be making those smart and strategic decisions toward increasing affordability in, in our community. Um, so that is, my, that is my recommendation. And the ask is that at this point, um, we will have a larger, sorry, it, it, we will have a larger than average unprecedented amount of trust funds to allocate in this next round because the AHAB pulled out the reserve funds and because we anticipate that due to changing taxes, food tax, et cetera, that in um, upcoming years, the trust fund um, might be lower than average. And so this really is a prime um, time to take advantage of the funds that we have to utilize uh, towards a new assessment. And my final point, and then I'll shut up, is that the first assessment was supported and funded through the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. So this, um, there is precedent in using trust funds for the housing assessment. And I'm happy to take any questions. Go ahead, Mark. Mark Buehr, do you think there's any value in waiting for the real impact of the battery plant? We, we have, it will be three years at best before that significant impact hits our community and housing. 
This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. I would say that we need to be planning for and building for those families and new households to be coming into our community so that when those employees are coming in to work at that plant, they have options of m several nearby communities that would be an easy commute and so that they choose Lawrence as the place to live. We need affordable and attainable housing for them to make that choice. Excuse me. Okay. This is Christina Gentry. Thank you, Leah. Um, I, I, I support this because I understand that something's not studied, it can't be quantified, and I think it's really important for us to understand what our look, our local uh, housing market looks like. My only concern is that we agreed to move the housing out of reserve or housing trust funds out of reserve so we could be providing immediate direct funds to those who needed it most right now. Because you understand our need really is dynamic and huge uh, for people to access this funding. Uh, so that my only concern is how that funding and what that looks like for uh, the applicants who are going to be, uh, you know, putting their information into our NOFO that need those money, monies and monetary gains immediately. So that's that math could be done, but I, I do support this uh, this 90,000 to be earmarked for this uh, data assessment collection. Go ahead, Shannon. Shannon Howery, Housing Authority. I'm not sure that I support this. And not that you know, more information isn't better. The problem I see with it is we, we did the study. We knew we needed 5,000 new units, so many for seniors, so many for disabled. We're nowhere close to reaching what we already know. We're not gonna have enough money now or in the future to, to do so. And quite frankly, I'd either rather, you know, have Habitat or Tenants to Homeowner build another home for somebody than to than to have another study. I mean, luckily, I think we do know what we need in support of housing because, you know, the city and the county admirably took on to get that study, so we sort of have that information. We also know from the homeless population sort of what we need there. And, and while I agree, a lot of things have changed. What I in positive of is it got worse in all categories. Um, and I don't know that really drilling down into why it got worse or how much it got worse helps us that much. And honestly, if we're, if we're looking for a consultant, I'd rather go back to the diversity and equity and get somebody who could help us develop a legal program uh, to address that issue because I think that's an expertise we don't have and we don't know how to do. Um, and so, you know, I probably would be more supportive of that sort of an effort um, because I, you know, I think that's one of our biggest issues of how do we address that issue in a way that complies with the Fair Housing Act. And I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I don't know anybody who knows. Um, and so I guess that's, you know, I mean, if we thought it was all gonna be more money, then I'd be in favor of it. But unfortunately, we have a pie. And as I carve it up, I'd rather have a unit than another study. All right, Dana's got her hand up here. 
Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Dana Ortiz, Family Promise of Lawrence. That's kind of how I was thinking, Shannon, as well, and listening to this. The situation is so urgent. Nothing has been remarkably changed from the five years ago. We know those numbers. Uh, if anything, they've just gone up. Um, so I'm not sure. I, I, this is a large amount of money, and I'm a data nerd, so I love data, and I think it's very useful in guiding things, but we've got some data, and we've got a huge city-county effort going on with the homeless and housing plan, too. Um, I, I don't know that having a whole other consultant come in when we know we need things like rental assistance and some things like that that are not adequately funded right now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Trent? Uh, Trent Santee, Lawrence Home Builder. Um, I agree with the sentiment of I'd much rather have units than um, studies done, but I struggle with our communities turning down infill density developments. And so what do we need to do to convince our commissioners to vote yes on projects? If they need this data to see that they should say yes to stuff, then I support this, but I don't know how to answer to that political question. It's just, we need uh, whatever ammunition we can to get the commissioners to say yes to projects. Mr. Chair? Yeah, go ahead. So I agree both with Shannon, with Dana. Uh, uh, Trent, I'm, I'm not sure whether or not uh, more data will convince our commissioners to move in our direction. I, I also do not support this. I, I think we have data which we have not. We have not reached the objectives that we had need to and we had hoped to. And so I would like to make the motion that this be put to a vote, that we vote on whether or not to do this so that we can either close this question or, or keep it open. Okay. Uh, before we take a motion, I'd like to make a comment. Uh, I'm wondering if as opposed to making a decision today, whether we have this go through the NOFO process and submit like any other project. Hmm. And then if there are funds that we want to, it comes out of the same pool. Uh, yeah, I know, but think about the matrix. Um, I, I, well, I, I don't know that the matrix is going to be I'd like there. to point of order. <laughs> I made a motion. Oh, you made a motion? I made a motion. I would like to either see a second or to see it done okay. for lack of second. Then we can have further discussion. Okay. I didn't realize you made a motion. I thought you suggested we someone make one. Okay. So we have a motion on the floor. My apologies. I would second the motion. What? I, okay. So this is Leah Roslin. What was the motion? Yeah. Can you repeat the motion? The motion was to vote on whether this recommendation be go forward. So folks will need to know what an I or a nay represents. So we would just basically be calling the vote on this, whether to approve it or not. An okay. I Correct. would be to approve the funding, a nay would be to Correct. deny the funding. Okay, thank you. Okay. So we have that motion. Now it's been moved thank and seconded. You. And we have a second. Now there's discussion. Clarification question, please, to the motion. Um, the, yet, the yes would yes to approve would be yes to approve as it's currently written and presented today, right now at this meeting. Correct. Correct. Thank you. This is Sarah Waters. Since I have to vote first, I need to make sure. So, 
If I vote, if I say yes to the motion, I am saying yes, we're funding this. Yes, a yes vote okay. would be approving funding yes, for a study. A no vote okay. would be denying funding at this time. Okay. Understood. Thank you. And, and I think okay. more accurately, it would be to accept the recommendation from staff. Okay. The yes vote. All right. Uh, yes. Any other comments, questions? I'm going to say I appreciate uh, Shannon and Dana, uh, their influence because they're working in this space directly. And I feel like um, their information has also made me uh, assess differently uh, my recommendation to be yes. So maybe I'm just jumping the gun might already tell you what I was going to vote. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for that clarification. Uh, the information is necessary for, for votes to be uh, supported by me, so I, I appreciate that info. Okay, any other comments, questions? I'm gonna call the roll. Sarah Waters. Yes. Phil Englehart. No. Mark Bueller. No. Christina Gentry. No. Erica Zimmerman. Yes. Dana Ortiz. No. Shannon Aury. No. Thomas Howe. No. Trent Santee. No. Monty Sokup. No. So motion fails. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight to two. All right. Other new business? Anybody have any new business? Okay, I'm gonna let you read the calendar events instead of reading through them. And with that, we are adjourned. Thank you all. Thanks everybody. Thank you, everybody. I don't, I don't think I got a completely firm direction from you though.